Let's open them to the New Testament, to the book of James. To the book of James. We're going to continue our verse-by-verse study of this book. And again, this morning, we're going to recognize why this book is called a very practical epistle. Now let's stand and ask God's blessing upon us, and then I'll read from verse 13 down through verse 18. Let's pray. Now, Father, we come in the blessed name of Christ to hear and to learn from Your Word. And, Father, we do humble ourselves and ask that You have already prepared our hearts to receive the truth of Your Word, that we would see its excellency, its, its, uh, Lord, how practical it is to help us in our uh, daily failings and the things we must think and the things we must do. Now, Father, take this Word and apply it to our hearts this morning and train us as Your children, the people of God, Lord. Raise us up to a, a more sure and definite, Lord, maturity. And, Lord, give us... Lord, not only the desire, but the capability of blessing your name and and holiness and truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, beloved, the word of the living God, James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Well, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Let every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or or shifting shadow. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Now, beloved, this morning I want to address two important aspects of the text that I've just read to you. And that is what aggravates sin... What is it that aggravates our sin? And then how do we overcome sin? How do we fight through temptations? Now James is addressing in these verses the brother or sister that has fallen into temptation. Now they have fallen into temptation because they have allowed the circumstance put before them they have, they have had inner desires and appetites that have sprung forth wrongly or against the Word of God. And it's sin to do that. James is addressing where these sins come from. Where these, how does temptation burst forth into sin? And if sin not dealt with and repented of, where does sin take us? This is very practical, is it not? Well, it's practical in the sense that we all face various trials and testings. And from God's perspective, we are tested so that we might grow up in Christ. We're tested. God 
holds for himself the prerogative or testing our faith and increasing our faith by the tests that we encounter when we encounter those tests with grace, with faith, and with the Word of God that we would grow up therein and become more and more like the image of our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goal. That's the goal, that the image of God that we were originally created in, in our original creation, Christ comes to recreate that image in us because in the garden we fell in Adam, but in Christ we are raised up to the newness of life, being restored, regenerated, given life. And that image now in Christ is being fostered and built up. That's the goal of salvation. It's not simply that when I die, I'm going to go live up yonder in the by and by. That's not necessarily the focus of Scripture, but it's that we would believe in Christ and then begin to walk in the newness of life according to His Word by the strength and the faith given to us where we would grow up into the image of our blessed Savior. Now what happens when we forego those things and we allow these testings and trials to turn into temptations? Now remember from God's perspective, it's a trial. From man's perspective or Satan's perspective, it's a, it's a temptation. Temptations have to do with evil, sin. When we allow desires to spring up in our heart, and these desires may be lawful desires, they may be good desires. They actually may be forbidden desires. But when those desires spring forth in a circumstance that we are willing to sin to get whatever it is we want, that's falling into temptation. Let me give you an example. It's not a sin, beloved, to be... To be hungry and desire food. The appetite of hunger is a natural appetite, is it not? But if I'm willing to murder to feed my appetite or to have food now, then that's a problem. Hunger can be a very natural appetite, but if I'm willing to sin to be fed right now, Brothers and sisters, that natural appetite has now broke forth into sin. Now you can, I mean, that's a lawful appetite. Just like last week, I, I dealt, sort of addressed in a very minor way the, the idea of, you know, sexual appetites. They're not wrong in and of themselves, but there's a context for them. There's a place for them. And if we're willing to sin by transgressing those boundaries that God has placed, then we have fallen into temptation and we're guilty of sinning before God. A great question to ask ourselves is, you know, what do I want so badly that I'm willing to sin to have it? What is it I want so badly that I'm willing to sin to have it? And obviously the person that James is dealing with here is willing to sin to have whatever it is they're lusting for, they're longing for, they're desiring and wanting. And we're going to look at that this morning. 
But we're going to look at it from a different angle than we did last week. This morning we're going to look at the aggravation that James brings to the table. That is, what happens when we have fallen into sin? What happens when we have allowed the circumstance before us lead, uh, uh, provide for us an opportunity to, to express in a sinful way you know, something because we want it so badly? What is it? When we find ourselves in this situation that aggravates that sin, well, look at what he says. Look what he says in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. That's the aggravation. The aggravation is not only is the the brother or sister guilty of sinning before God, but now they aggravate that sin by blaming God for that sin. Now what I mean by that, brothers and sisters, is that compounding their guilt before God. It's one thing to sin. It's another thing to blame God for that sin. It's a whole nother degree of aggravation or heinousness as our confession states, there's another level or layer or degree of aggravation and heinousness because not only are we guilty of our own sinning and responsible for it, but we're willing to blame God for it. Now, that's nothing new. This is not anything new. Since the very fall of man... Man has felt the freedom to blame God for his sin. You can remember Adam. When God addressed Adam in the garden, I mean, Adam wanted God to understand plainly that, well, Lord, it's the woman you gave me. You know, the woman you gave me, she, she ate and then she gave me the fruit to eat. If she would have been a better woman, I wouldn't be guilty of eating that forbidden fruit. That's the implication. And of course, what did the woman say? Well, it's the devil. He tricked me. Neither one taking responsibility for their own actions and sins. Seeking to blame. And listen, there's a lot of people that blame the devil for things the devil's not guilty of. The devil did beguile her. But the devil didn't make her pick up that fruit and take a bite. Eve may have solicited Adam's participation in the sin, but she didn't make Adam partake of the forbidden fruit. And we see that, and it's a very common, it's a very easy uh, illustration to understand, isn't it? James is addressing this aggravation of blaming God for one's sin. And I would say this, I would say out of, out of all the blame that goes around all over the earth all the time, it's more than, more than likely there's two objects of blame. The devil made me do it, or it's God's fault. Now, we're not going to address the devil this morning. But I do want to address the freedom that burst forth, this, this freedom to say, you know, the freedom of speech to say, well, it's God's fault. I want to address that. Because James here gives us a warning. Don't say it. 
Don't accuse God. Don't blame God for tempting you when, notice what he says in verse 13, or verse 14, but each one is tempted when he or she is carried away and enticed by what? What's the text say? By his own lusts. His own lust. And James even goes on to tell us where that comes from. From the heart, from within. James is warning Christians not to blame God for their sins. Now, I think there is a context that we need to address and deal with here because we've already dealt with the aspect of God's sovereignty, God's power, God's providence, God's rule and reign over His creation, all men and their actions. That is, God is sovereign. And we're not going to go back, but remember all those verses we brought forth, speaking of the sovereignty of God, showing us the sovereignty of God, that God is not only the sovereign creator who spoke all that exists into existence, that he made all that which we see and don't see, the unseen dominion around us, but he did it from the power of his own word. He spoke it into existence. He's all-powerful. And the God who made all that we see and experience also manages that creation. He oversees it. He, look at all the verses that talk about God feeding the sparrows. And using the idea and the truth that not one sparrow falls to the ground that our Heavenly Father doesn't know about it and doesn't recognize it. Our Father feeds the animals of the earth. And you may say, well, you know, that's hyperbole and poetry. And it comes from those passages of the Bible that, you know, are, are, are known for exaggeration. Well, beloved, it may be in one sense this, this idea of poetry, but nevertheless, it states a vital truth. God feeds all the animals. God manages His creation. God did not wind it up like a little child's toy and then throw it out there and step away for it to run its own course. Our Lord upholds what He has created. And He does so by His power, His glory, and goodness and kindness. Now here's the kindness that I'm talking about. Matthew chapter 5, what does Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount explain to us? He says, does not our heavenly Father cause it to rain on the wicked and the righteous? Who manages the earth? The Lord does. Who manages the rainfall? The Lord does. He call, who causes the, the, the crops to grow and to bring forth the fruit that they're designed to bring forth? God does. So we need to understand that. And if, if but here's, here's the mistake that many make. Well, if God is all sovereign, if God does control all the actions of men, if God is all powerful and God is ruling over everything, then how can I be responsible for my own actions? So you can see here the slip 
you can see here the slip that some make theologically, right? And that's what James is doing practically. He's bringing a real situation to light. And he's saying, look, brothers and sisters, let me explain to you how your temptation, how when you fall into temptation, you aggravate that temptation. You bring to yourself more guilt and more guilt by blaming God for your own sin." I want to say this to you, and I think it's going to resonate and you'll understand it. Or at least, I think you're going to believe it. Who's ever made you sin? Who's ever made you to say something you didn't want to say? And we say that, well, well, they made me angry. True, they may have solicited an emotion of anger. But did they have to to burst forth in curse words and... And demeaning that person's image? Did that cause the hurtful things that you said? Did somebody make you say those things that were sinful and wrong? You see, brothers and sisters, how we deal and manage those appetites of anger. How we handle emotions like anger, uh, disappointment. You know how when we are disappointed... We have, may have the tendency to what? To, to just launch into this avalanche of how you disappoint me all your life. How all your life you disappointed me. How all our marriage you've disappointed me. How all I, in my raising of you as a child you have disappointed me. See, I think the reality that we all recognize as the children of God is we do those things because we don't control ourselves. That we are angry and we have the right to be heard. We have the right, I have the right to impose my views on you. That's the way we think. And we have to understand, brothers and sisters, that that's not how a Christian ought to be. That's not what a Christian ought to do. And you can see now, right, how practical James is. You can see James, is, James hits us where we need to be hit, doesn't he? This aggravation, let me, let me read out of the confession how this aggravation works, and I think you'll recognize it. In question 151, uh, our confession of faith deals with these aggravations, and it says, what are those aggravations that make some sins more heinous than others? I'm going to mention them to you. The first thing that aggravates our sins is the one sinning. That is, do we know better? Have we been taught better? Have we, you know, have we been raised better? Are we in good churches that preach the Word of God, that's taught us the Word of God? We know what God expects. We know that God is holy. We know that God wants us to be holy. I mean, all of the, you know, who is it? Are we of riper age? How long have we walked with the Lord? Those of us who have walked with the Lord longer are more, are more guilty when we sin, not less. Okay? Just one. Who's doing the sin? Who's blaming God for their sin? Notice what James says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Now notice when it gets down to verse 16, don't be deceived. My what? My beloved brethren. Who's doing the blaming? Christians. 
Christians are distorting and twisting the doctrine of God's sovereignty to justify their falling into temptation and sin. They're blaming God for their sin instead of recognizing where that sin really originated. Not from God, but from within. Well, there's another aggravation that we need to recognize. And that is, who's offended? Who's the party aggravated? It's not just the one sinning, but it's the one who is sinned against. And the more, listen, the greater the person is in your life, the greater the sin. It's a lot, it's worse for me to sin against my bride than for me to sin against a stranger. It's worse for me to sin against my child than for me to sin against a stranger. It's worse for me to sin against you, a friend, a congregant. Someone that we've built a relationship with. Someone, look, that we've prayed together. We've met together. We've wept together. We've cried together. We've laughed together. And then to go sin against a stranger. That's bad to sin against a stranger. But brothers and sisters, these are more aggravated sins. Notice who, who is the object of this blame. Notice what James says. James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. God is the superlative here. We read from Psalm 145. What did the psalmist bring out about God? Oh, how good God is to everyone. I want you to think about that. The connection there is how heinous this aggravation is because we are the children of God. And he addresses this in this series of, of verses that I read this morning. He deals with this. He deals with God's character. He deals with God's works and God's actions. He deals with the connection that we have with God. He calls us in verse 17, he says, He's the Father of lights. And when we sin, brothers and sisters, and we sin particularly with God being the object, it's the greatest of all aggravations that we would blame God for our own sins. There's another one, and it's the quality and the nature of the sin itself. The quality and the nature of the sin itself. It's not only who is sinning, it's not only who is sinned against, but it's the quality and nature of the sin. That is when, when we stand and we listen to what James is saying here, James gives us the warning, do not say, do not speak these words out of your mouth, do not, do not speak them in your heart. Because if you do, you are impugning God's character. Here's the nature of the offense. Now listen, James doesn't address or deal with the aspect of the, of the Christian man or woman saying this to somebody or saying it in their heart. He doesn't say when one says in his own heart. He doesn't say or when you tell others. But listen, tell, listen which one's worse? It's one thing to say it in your heart. It's another thing for me to tell you and impugn God's character to you. God, He tempted me. 
The solicitation of such a statement is to lead someone else to think, well, if God is guilty of, of, of tempting you, maybe, possibly, He's guilty for tempting me. And you can see the infection that such a statement could cause a church, a family, a nation. See the nature and quality of the fence. Now, now, brothers and sisters, it's bad enough when we say when we say these things in our own hearts. And I just want to address that briefly, because because I think it's important for us to correct things we think about first in our heads, in our hearts. The Bible says that the fool says in his heart, "There is no God." Jesus goes on in Matthew chapter 15 and he talks about where the where the the corrupt how corruption comes from the heart begins in the heart he says these words he says but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. Remember, he was arguing with the, the, the Jews, the Jewish scribes and Pharisees, and they were all about washing their hands and washing the cups and the plates so many times and going through all of these washing rituals. And Jesus was like, it's not what goes in that defiles a man, it's what comes out. You may eat your food with dirty hands, it's not going to pollute you morally. But when you allow sin to give birth in your heart and then it comes out of your mouth, guess what? That's polluting. That's corrupting. He says, they defile a man for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. You see, some of the things we say are what? Revelations of the heart. Hmm. Let's go to another passage of Scripture. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34 through 37. Jesus again is addressing these Jewish scribes and Pharisees and He calls them brood of vipers. He says, how can you, being evil, speak good things? What He's saying is, boy, they have poison tongues. Poisonous words. They have corrupt speech. Now, one of the things that made the, the, the language and the speech of the Pharisees and the scribes so dangerous and heinous and polluting was they were wrong about God. They were wrong about the kingdom of God. They were wrong about handling the Word of God. You can read through the New Testament Gospels and notice how many times Jesus says, only if you knew the Scriptures. You err because you don't know the Word of God. You don't know Moses. If you believed Moses, you would believe in me. Jesus goes on after, talk, after uh, uh, rebuking them. He says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that every idle word men speak, they will give an account of it on the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. 
Matthew chapter 7, the Lord Jesus said, many will stand, stand before me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all of these miracles in your name? Did we not do all of these great works in your name? And Jesus will turn to them and say, I never knew you. Why? Because what they said with their mouths did not line up with their hearts. Preach it. It's that simple though, isn't it? It's that obvious. That there's got to be a correlation. There must be a connection. But what happens when we begin to conceive in our hearts wrong ideas and thoughts of God? Blaming God for one's sin. We're on dangerous ground. Sin that has becoming, sin that is already bad and evil, not good, has now become aggravated because we are assaulting the God of glory and the God who is all good. Secondly, now that's my first point. The first point is, beloved, let us not aggravate our already, our own personal sins. Let's take responsibility for them. Okay? Let's recognize that when we speak, where does that come from? Our own hearts. Let's recognize that these appetites that we either don't discipline ourselves to control or control with the Word of God, that we don't let God's Word have its way with us. And a number of reasons why we ought to depend and trust and rest on God's power and strength to lead us and guide us in righteousness. Beloved, let's take responsibility when we fail. Amen. All right, that's been established. Now let's go to the second most important point of this morning's sermon, and that is God's goodness. That's where, we want to, that's where we want to end our time. God's goodness. Why? Why do we need to know about God's goodness? Why do we need to see God as good? One good reason. Because God's goodness is a stronghold to either keep us from sinning or when we do sin, to give us the motivation to get out of it. Paul says in Romans chapter 2 that it is the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. See, brothers and sisters, when we fall, when we sin, we don't turn to God because we're just afraid He's going to destroy us with a hammer from heaven. That's not love. That's not repentance grounded in the love of God. We are motivated by our God being good. He's ready to receive sinners when they fall. He's ready to restore His child when they fall. He's ready to give back to that child all the graces that He has so lavished upon them again and again and again and again. He's a giving God. And it's a great motivation when we sit and we notice and we recognize and the Lord pulls the scales back from our eyes and we can see just how great and awesome God is that we can say, woe is me, I cannot even look and bear to see how great He is and how unworthy I am. Oh, He's a good God. And I'm not a good person. Because not only will I break his law, I will sin against him and I will accuse him of being the source of my sin.
How many of us have blamed God for our sins? How many of, how many of us have already been guilty of doing that? God, it's the wife you gave me. God, it's the job I have. God, it's the children I have. Oh, hey, it's my mom and dad. Modern psychology relishes and, and thrives on blaming others for sin. Let's look at God's goodness. I want to give you a, just a, a beautiful definition of what this goodness is because it paints such a great picture of the goodness of God. I want you to listen. Listen closely to these words. This theologian said, The goodness of God is a very comprehensive term. It includes all the forms of His kindness toward men, whether considered as creatures, as sinners, or as saints. But as we may describe it generally as the property of the divine being, that is, God is good. He is good. He can never be not good. To think about goodness is to first let our minds think about God, like God is love, God is good. Okay? They can't be separated. You can't dissect goodness from God just like you can't dissect love from God. He is love. He's the epitome, the essence of love. And He is the essence of goodness. To not have any good is to not have a God. Okay? This divine being which disposes Him to communicate happiness to His creatures as far as is consistent with all of his other perfections. Now I want you to think about that. That God's goodness is displayed first and foremost in the communication of happiness to his creatures. God is good and does good. Who does he do, who does he do good to? Those whom he created in his image. And even to the animals of the fields and the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea, God is good. I want to ask you this morning, how does that challenge your thinking of God? How does that challenge your thinking of your circumstance, of your situation? Are you, have you been tempted to see God more wrathful and angry than kind and blessed and good. You see, both thought patterns are going to have fruit. You see, beloved, listen to me. I, I'm not here to tell you everything you think or do about is wrong, but what, here's what I'm here to tell you. When you've repented of your sins, is it a repentance based and grounded upon love for God? <laughs> I love the Lord. And I'm unworthy of all these blessings. But I have them because of Him. And it moves me to recognize my wretchedness. I don't want to blame my wife. I don't want to blame my children. I don't want to blame my pastor. I don't want to blame my friends. I want to own my own, I want to own my own sin and put them under the blood of Jesus. I want to take responsibility.
this author that gave us this definition of sin. Listen to this. This is beautiful. He says, The goodness of God is distinguished by different names according to the different aspects in which they are viewed in Scripture, to the different objects to which they are exercised. When it relieves the miserable, the goodness of God is called mercy. (laughs) What does God give to the miserable? Mercy. Mercy. When it confers favor on the undeserving, it's called grace. We don't get what we deserve, do we? We get grace. Grace. The goodness of God. When it supplies wants for the needy, it's called charity. Charity. And when it forbears, listen to me, when it forbears to execute punishment upon those provoking Him, it's called long-suffering. How many times has God been long-suffering with us? And will God continue to be long-suffering? Amen. But listen, 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 listen. Brothers and sisters, God's goodness is a motivation for us to put sin at a distance. That is, maybe we can be wise and not naive to stay away from certain situations and circumstances that might lead us into what? Temptation and sin. Young people, listen to that. Learn to stay away from situations and circumstances that might lead you to sin against God. Secondly, when you find yourself in that sin, in a sin or many sins, will you see the goodness of God? Will you repent and come back to your Father? Let's look at a couple things James brings out about God's goodness. You're going to love this. Notice how James highlights God's character. Verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and and he himself does not tempt anyone with evil. James is addressing God's goodness. You see, when we go back and we look at everything the Bible says about God and His goodness and His favor and His charity and His long-suffering, does that sound like the one that's going to cause you to sin and make you sin and defile yourself and defile your neighbors and to defile His name? Does that sound like Him? It doesn't. James is highlighting God's character. He said He cannot even be tempted Himself with evil. How can He then tempt you with evil? It's above. Tempting you with evil is far below his character. God is good. You know, when we talk about good people, we're talking about people that what? Do good things. Hey, do good things because they're doing kindness, the acts of kindness, acts of charity. Listen, if you're here, you don't do those things, you're not a good person. Cuz this is what God does and he's a good God. He's long-suffering. He's long-suffering with those who what? Deserve wrath. He sees the needy and he doesn't he doesn't ignore them. He helps them. And like a real father, but better. 
better. When we come to him, he's always ready to receive us back. Sometimes us earthly fathers get tired, don't we? We've had enough. We've had enough. But I want to tell you something. Your heavenly father will never turn you away. He will never turn you away. You will always have a father ready to receive you when you repent of your sins. Even if your earthly father rejects you, your heavenly father will not. Character. Secondly, James points out his work. Notice what he goes on to say in verse uh, 17. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, from coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow or, or shifting shadow. James now deals with his work. He says, look, God is not only... Um, holy and good, but, but God is a giver and God is unchangeable in his character. He's a giver of what? Good gifts. You notice what Jesus had to deal with that on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if an earthly father, see, when you come to your father and you say, dad, may I have a loaf of bread? Does he get, does the dad give the child a snake? No. A rock? How much more, Jesus said, your heavenly Father knows how to give you what you need. He's the giver of perfect gifts. What are some of these gifts he's talking about? Faith. Has not our good God given us that which we need to overcome sin and temptation? Faith. Saving faith. Trust in Him. Has our Heavenly Father not given us a perfect rule of living and understanding and ethics revealed to us in His Word how we should think and how we should live every day of our lives, what we should think about our marriages and families, what we ought to think about church, how we ought to think about all of these other things. Has our good God not given us a perfect rule of living and a standard of living? Yes. Has our good God not given us a church? Teachers? Pastors? Pastors? Aid us and help us, encourage us to instruct us in the Word. Hold us, help hold us accountable. Yes. That's what James says. James says that he is a giving God. Well, let me ask you this. Listen, what about the gospel? Has he not given you a good message? What's the good message? What's the good news? All who come and repent of their sins and believe in me, I shall give everlasting life. Amen. The gospel. The question is, are you thankful for these things? And then lastly, and this is the, I think, all of them are important, but I want you to dwell on this one. That is the relationship that James highlights. He calls him the father of lights. Now, I think there are two aspects here. Number one is the father of, of lights, the sun, the moon, the stars, all those things that, notice all the lights are the things that we gander at. It's the things we stand in awe of. I mean, what light compares to the sun? Is the sun not the standard of all lights? 
Yes, it is, isn't it? Any light we create, the standard of brightness of that man-made light is in direct connection with the illumination of the sun. He's the Father who created that light. But He's also your Father. Your Father. There's a reason the Bible... points out how grievous it is to sin against your father and mother. What's the fifth commandment? Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you enjoy long life on earth. Why? Because it's directly connected to how much you love and honor your father and mother. Now, that's from a human perspective. Take that up to God. What are the two greatest commandments? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love Him. Honor Him. But don't just honor Him as God. Honor Him as your Father. Now, brothers and sisters, what I've given you this morning is a lot to think about. I can go on. I have more notes. But I'm going to stop. Two things, though, right? We can aggravate our sins by blaming God for them. Secondly, secondly, let us train our minds and hearts to dwell on God's goodness. Okay? I want you this afternoon to talk about this sermon with your family. That's a good thing. You've got time. Make time. Think about it. Talk about it. And when you pray as a family or as a single person, thank God for His goodness. Let's pray.